Hello and welcome to Teen Scientist. I'm your host, Raina Malhotra, and doing our audio engineering today is Sarit Lashinsky. Here on the show, I bring you all stories of innovation and excellence in the STEM disciplines entirely from a youth perspective. I feature young researchers and respected experts in their fields at the local, regional, and national levels with the goal to inspire the next generation of scientists to learn from their journeys. In the studio with me today is a very, very special guest that I had the privilege of meeting earlier this year in around April while we were presenting at the Delaware Valley Science Fair or DVSF. So joining us today, is Michelle Kagrimian, a young researcher whose story I really thought was so inspirational and moving. And so I'm really excited to dive into this conversation today. How are you, Michelle? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Reina. And thank you for being here. I know you made quite a drive. Where are you from? And um, how far did you drive to get here? About two hours. Um, It was a pretty long drive, but it's all right. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you again. And welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. What have you been up to since we last spoke in April? Anything fun going on? I know you kind of finished the school year. We're both juniors, but what else have you been up to? Yeah, uh, planning my next research project, of course, as I'm sure you are as well. I plan on working with a university this year, hopefully. So really my main concern now is getting ready for college, Um, almost a senior. It's crazy to think about, really. But I'm getting ready for those, taking the standardized tests, trying to get more volunteer work in. So mainly focusing on the future. Great. Glad to hear you're, you know, wrapping up just like I am. So let's just dive right into some questions with you. Can you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, your school and your age and grade? Yeah. Um, My name is Michelle Kagramian. I am a rising senior at the Marine Academy of Technology and Environmental Science located in New Jersey. I focus on research at my school. I participate in some of the researching clubs as well as helping the incoming freshmen get ready for their research projects as well. And can you tell us a little bit about some of your interests and hobbies? I'm, I'm assuming you kind of lean towards the STEM field, but what kind of you know activities do you do? Yeah, of course, the STEM has been a great part of my life, but another major part has been drawing, kind of surprising, you know, more of the artistic field. Um, following in my grandfather's steps and my father's steps, they really like to draw. They've drawn all their life. So I really took up drawing in sixth grade. And ever since then, I've been practicing painting, you know, coloring stuff like that. I think it's been my major hobby. It takes up a lot of my time, so I really enjoy doing it when I do have the free time to do it. But other than that, I participate in various clubs at my school. Um, we do a terrapin club where we help to protect the terrapins and release them. I'm a leader for that organization, as well as, like I said, helping the freshmen. Research has been a major part. So like you said, the STEM field. It's amazing. And I'm glad you touched on your interest in art because I feel like there's often this misconception that when you're interested in like math or science, you don't really have that like artistic side to you. But I love when people like have an overlap with their interests. Mm -hmm. I personally do photography and I think it's so cool to play around with like the science aspect in art. That's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I now want to touch on the fact that you actually do face some unique challenges as compared to your peers in your day-to-day life as someone with facioscapulohumeral muscular dystrophy or FSHD. That's a mouthful. But can you tell us a little bit about what this condition is? FSHD is short for facioscapulohumeral muscular dystrophy, like you said. It's a progressive genetic disease which affects the skeletal muscles in your system, such as, you know, the arms, upper body, the legs, even the facial muscles. Um, Overall, it just weakens these muscles. It's a genetic mutation where the DUX4 gene in the chromosome 4 has an improper expression. 
So as a result, it asymmetrically converts the muscles into fat and overall just weakening the individual. And how has having FSHD impacted your daily life and activities? Are there any specific challenges that you face on a regular basis? Yeah, I think like any disability, it's definitely had an effect on my life. It's the simple things really such as like running, walking, things like that have become a challenge in the day-to-day life. But overall, it's something that I'm able to face because of the support that I have around me. You know, my friends, my family, they're always there to help me out in case I ever need anything. I think um, the major, I would say, problem that the disability comes with is the facial muscles. Like I said, it affects my ability to smile. So when, you know, taking pictures with somebody, you would say cheese and smile. It's not something that people would think about because, you know, it's a simple task that people go through. But it's an action that is difficult to perform when your facial muscles are weakened. But overall, I like to think that, you know, if I can't smile outwardly, I'm still smiling on the inside, of course. So, yeah. I love that yeah. message. That's really, really powerful mm-hmm. to hear. How were you diagnosed with FSHD? Was it something that you inherited or did you kind of realize at a young age? Can you walk us through that story? Yeah, so my dad has FSHD and it is a genetic disorder. So it has been passed down to me from him genetically. I have two other siblings, they do not have it. I think my parents have known from birth that I would have it and it has never been a secret to any of us. So it's not something that you know has ever been hidden from me, I've always known. But um, the expression of the disability is really what time would show. And as the years have progressed, I've seen you know changes in my physical state. But it is something that we've known. So I've been diagnosed from birth. And you mentioned your dad has it. Mm -hmm. Is his kind of the way that he displays his, you know, effects of having this condition, does that overlap with yours? Like, can he kind of relate to what you've been going through throughout your childhood too? I think um, because my dad has always been very open with it to me and to everybody around, I've learned from him to be open with it as well. So I kind of take inspiration from him in the fact that it's something tied, you know, it's not something to be embarrassed about. So he's always been able to talk about it. And I think I've learned from him that I should also be able to talk about it. So here I am. Yeah, it's amazing. And did he get it passed down from one of his parents as no, well? No, surprisingly, right? None of us in you know the past have ever had it no family members in the past. It was just the genetic mutation. That's why genetics is such a crazy field. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I'm glad you looped that back into that field. Um, So what are some changes that you've made to your living environment or routine to accommodate your condition? So in our house, my dad has a stair lift installed, mostly for him. But in the event that I feel like weakened more than usual, then I will use it. But for the most part, I prefer using the staircase just to get in as much like muscle workout as I can. Other than that, in school, I have an elevator that I use. Actually, it's a funny story because about two or three weeks before school ended, our school flooded and that caused the elevator to be shut down. So I was forced to take the stairs every day. Now, at first, I was a little bit you know, worried that it would uh, cause me some problems. But um, my friends had absolutely no issue helping me. They would carry my backpack with me. My teachers had no problem with me being a little bit later early to class. So um, those kind of accommodations with the elevator and stuff like that would be a part of my life. Yeah, I'm glad you share that story because it's mm-hmm. really important to 
a lot of people kind of overlook those simple little things like yeah. going upstairs at school. So I'm glad you mentioned that because mm-hmm. it's so important for people to realize it's something that affects you everywhere. For sure. Um, how have you been able to manage and cope with the physical and emotional aspects of FSHD? And are there any specific strategies or resources that you've turned to that you found helpful? I think uh, with any challenge, there comes you know problems such as the ones you've said. Like I said before, art has definitely been something that I've turned to as not only a hobby, but also probably a coping mechanism. Um, Other than that, I'd have to say my friends have always really been there for me, my family as well. It's always been a supportive surrounding environment, so I've always felt very comfortable around them, and they're just a very supportive family, really, to be around. Well, that's great. Thank you for sharing those, you know, resources and strategies. Now, I kind of want to wrap up this whole narrative about your experiences by asking if you've ever encountered any misconceptions or misunderstandings about FSHD and how you've learned to handle those situations and educate others about your condition. Yeah, I mean, since I was in middle school, I'd say sixth and seventh grade, I haven't been participating in gym. And I remember a specific event where in seventh grade gym, I wasn't participating in like their warm-ups, like push-ups or whatever. And the some person came up to me and asked me like, why wasn't I participating? And it was like a whole interrogation basically that they were asking me why I wasn't in gym. You know, of course I understand people have these kind of questions and you know, they're not completely familiar with the situation that I'm in, which is why I'm always here to be able to explain to them my situation and explain to them why I'm not able to participate in the same activities that they are in. Um, It got to the point where I decided to make a presentation about it. So in seventh grade, we had a junior TED Talk option for us. And that was something that I decided to present in. And my entire presentation was about how I'm disabled and how I'm pursuing the genetic field. So that's how I really went around the issue. So I decided to go over everything in one big presentation for everyone. Well, that's amazing. And definitely probably took a lot of confidence. Were you feeling nervous when you gave that presentation? For sure. I remember getting up on that stage. It was so, so, like I was so nervous to get up on there. My mom was there in the front row with my best friend. And because you're on stage, you're not able to see everybody in the crowd, but I could feel all of them looking. And it was definitely, you know, a very mm, crazy situation to be in. But I don't regret it because now I look back at it and I can say, wow, I did that. And I'm proud of myself for doing that because now I have this situation that I hope my siblings can look up to. I hope that maybe others could look up to. Yeah, that's always my goal. Definitely. And I think it's so important that that's just one example, but I think it's so important that we continue to give a platform, give a voice so that it's normalized, that you can yeah. tell your story and that people can understand it from your perspective. So I, I, I really respect you for you know, doing Thank that at you. such a young age. I now want to transition to talk about your research on this topic. So can you tell us, walk us through the entire story of how you decided to take your own condition and then actually move on to research it yourself for your science fair project? Yeah. So when I entered high school, I decided to do research and I focused on soils, actually. So that's where I started my researching career. And it was something that was required in my high school. We had to do a research project as freshmen. And as soon as I handed in that research, I was done with it. And I said, I'm never doing research ever again. Like, this is it for me. But 
eventually I had to present that research. And at the end of my presentation, my teacher told me that I should continue it. As a joke, I told him that I would like continue it outside in a big field, something that I wasn't actually thinking I was going to do. But he said yes. And I realized that this is something that motivated me. And just because he was there to give me that support and the other teachers around me were able to give me that support at a time when, you know, the environment around me, I wasn't around a lot of people because we were all virtual. So being able to have that kind of support from my teacher really inspired me and motivated me to continue research. And as a sophomore, I continued it into soils again, so biochemistry once again. And it has nothing to do with my disability. But I thought that researching was so important in my life that maybe I could apply this to something that would be useful to me, like more than just the soils. So I decided to focus on my disability because I know that there is research going on for my disability as it is now, but it's something that I'm not able to see or participate in myself. So I decided that, you know, maybe I'd give it a try and try doing things myself to see if maybe there could be a treatment that I would be able to come up with. Because as of right now, there is nothing available, no treatment or care. There are some physical therapies available, but that's to each their own how it works. So that was my start to doing research as a junior regarding my disability. And I went from there. That's amazing. And I love how you didn't start off, you know, working, you kind of started off in a total different field, and then Mm -hmm. you kind of grew towards what you thought would actually make an impact on your life. Were you intimidated at first by this whole research thing? Did you think it was kind of something daunting, or were you really, really excited to do it? Um, Starting off research as a freshman, I was nervous, for sure, because, you know, coming into a school where I've never done anything with research before, and because at my home school, we didn't do any research. The school that I go to now is a school that I had to apply for and get accepted into. And it wasn't something I was used to for sure. But after being able to go to the science fair as a sophomore, because we weren't allowed to as freshmen for COVID reasons, going there as a sophomore really opened up my mind to research in general, because I love the atmosphere. I'm, I'm sure you can relate, you know, the people you get to meet there, you make long lasting friendship. I'm still talking to people that I met at the science fair for sure. It's just a whole experience that I absolutely loved. Presenting my research felt so right. And that's why I realized that I want to pursue like, research. I knew I wanted to be geneticist, but now I want to go towards medical research with genetics involved. So I think at first it was definitely something that I was nervous about, but I've grown to really love it. That's amazing. And I'm glad you grew to love it and overcame that kind of initial hesitation or kind of fear that a lot of us have. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, thank you so much for starting off by giving us some insight into your life and your disability. We do need to pause very quickly for a break, but when we return, we will begin discussing your project and any advice that you may have for our lovely listeners. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Teen Scientist on WDIY. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all the programming you hear possible. Becoming a WDIY member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure WDIY will be here for the next person in our community to discover. Make your membership gift today at 610-694-8100 extension 4 or WDIY.org. We couldn't be here without you. 
Welcome back to Teen Scientist on WDIY. I'm Raina Malhotra, your host this evening, and with me in the studio, I have Michelle Kagramian, a young researcher with FSHD who based her research project off of her own condition, which I think is so inspiring and so cool. So diving right back in, can you tell us what your project title was and give us just a brief summary of what you were looking at? Mm -hmm. So my project was titled Using ATP to Trigger Satellite Cell Activity for Muscle Regeneration Therapy in Patients with FSHD. Basically, I researched how electrically stimulated contractions would affect a muscle because contractions in general are able to cause acute damage to a muscle. And when a muscle is damaged, the satellite cells within the skeletal muscles are able to go in and repair the damage and rebuild the muscle. And as I've said before, FSHD is a condition where the muscle is very limited. So if there was a way to be able to trigger that satellite cell activity to regrow a muscle, it could potentially be used as a therapy uh, for patients. And can you quickly explain the role of those satellite cells that you mentioned in skeletal muscles and how can they contribute to muscle repair and regeneration? Mm -hmm. So satellite cells are found in skeletal muscles. They are the stem cells in skeletal muscles, which are able to regrow and repair broken muscle, working together with fibroblasts to be able to not only uh, repair what was broken, but also even potentially grow it back stronger than it was before, which is really the key part here, because in a patient with weaker muscles, something like this would be very helpful. And what were the key factors that you tested to determine the degree of muscle contraction in your research, and how did you design and conduct your experiments in general? So I tested out six different solutions consisting of ATP, uh, potassium chloride, and magnesium chloride, combinations of the solutions that I previously said. And I submerged the rabbit muscle, I used a rabbit biopsy muscle, in the solutions. And I measured the length of the muscle before it was submerged and after it was submerged. And then doing the calculations, you were able to get the degree of contraction that occurred due to the submerging of the muscle. And by calculating the degree, I was able to find the solution that was best suited for causing the greatest degree of contraction. And how did you go about creating your entire experimental plan? Like, what was your entire process? And did you kind of do a literature review? Or was this something that you kind of thought of on your own? How did you come up with this whole, Mm -hmm. you know, procedure? So going into research, I knew that I wanted to focus on my disability. I just wasn't exactly sure how I would would be able to work on, you know, my muscles, for example, something that would directly impact me. So I realized that was kind of an ambitious project to be able to go, you know, headfirst into a disability that's so unknown. I decided to focus on a treatment. And I talked to my teachers about some various options, and they suggested looking at you know, if there are any kits available for chemicals that are I would be able to use within the labs that we have at school. And something that I found was electrical stimulation by using the different solutions I previously said. And there is a kit available with the muscles provided. I would be able to do something with those. So I decided to think of ways that I could apply this research into my life, apply it to other lives as well. And I realized that there aren't any treatments available now. And something like e-STEM, which is electrical stimulation, is already available. So I wanted to go off of that and apply it to my life. And can you 
Tell us the significant findings from your research and particularly the effects that you observed among the ratios of ATP and the salt solutions tested. So overall, the findings showed that a solution that has equal parts of ATP and salts proved to have the strongest degree of contraction. And I worked with a glycerinated muscle, which means in order to preserve the muscle in glycerol, all the ions would have to be removed. And with the addition of the salt, which is potassium chloride and magnesium chloride, it would add those ions back into the tropotroponin and tropomyosin complex to be able to cause the contraction of the muscle. And by adding the ATP from the solution, that's really what ignited the contraction to occur. So in the solutions with just salt, there was no contraction. In the solutions with just ATP, there was very minimal contraction. So really it's the balance of both that proved to have the strongest degree. And these findings are applied to our lives because within our bodies, the muscles that we have already contain the ions necessary. So really, the important thing was to be able to include that ATP into the muscle. And the question was how to involve that because you can't just, you know, put ATP into your body. So that's where the researching part came in. And electrical stimulation, e-stim, is an available device that is used. And how do your results compare to what's already been done? Or is this something that really hasn't been done in the past before? How, how can you compare your work? I think the research that's been done or is being conducted now currently is more of like a drug medicine with pe- researchers are finding the different things there's currently available losmapi mode i think they're working on but it's a drug so it's something that will take a lot of time to get approved and to get fully tested you know to be sure that it's safe for humans and everything it's not available to the public it's not available to me or my family So that's more time that would be put into waiting for something like that to happen. And of course, I'm grateful for the research that is going on now, and I'm excited to see what they are able to come up with. But for my life right now, I would like to have at least something I could be doing. So something like the e-stim, which is already available, could be applied to our lives now. While this drug could be very beneficial, it isn't available. So I think rather than, you know, me not being able to do anything as of right now, I should be putting in that effort into something that is. So I think that the e-stim could be applied to this current time without having to wait for a drug to be created. That's really interesting. And I'm glad you kind of like thought outside the box and took initiative on something that you yourself were dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of challenges have you encountered throughout your research process, um, whether it be this project or another one, and how were you able to overcome it? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've definitely faced the time issues as a high schooler. It's something, especially in our junior year, it's so hectic. We have so many things to do. I mean, now college is coming up, so that's something to focus on too. So I think the biggest issue has always been the time. You know, I've written research proposals and research reports after and before doing the research, which takes up time. There's the statistical analysis that you have to do, which also takes some time, and then actually conducting the research, which probably takes up the most amount of time. So I'd say that being able to balance schoolwork and you know extracurricular activities with the research has been a challenge. But because it's something that you and I are both passionate about, I think we've been able to find time for it. And we'll continue.
to hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've noticed this, but I've noticed a lot of people kind of underestimate how much effort, at least for my peers, how much effort and time goes into, you know, doing a research project like this. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, it feels like a full-time job. I'm working (laughs) alongside these PhD students and, you know, professors who are there all day. That's Mm -hmm. their entire job. But for us, it's kind of just like, it's just an additional thing on top of already being in school. So what kind of strategies have you used to be able to manage your time and juggle all these things at once? Yeah, I think the main thing, it's kind of silly, but I have this great calendar app in my phone and a reminders app, and I think that's really kept me organized. I think organization is really key because, you know, everything has its own day. And in my situation, the muscle samples that I was working with had a limited time and the solutions had to be stored in the fridge and freezer for a certain amount of time before they, um, you know, went bad. So it was all about the timing. And I think staying organized is definitely the main strategy here. Being able to plan everything out because, you know, research is important. You know, science fairs, of course, are important, but so is, you know, the day-to-day life. So is your schoolwork. So is keeping up with, you know, your family and friends. So being able to organize the time for everything, plan it all out, stay organized, I think that's the main strategy. Absolutely. Going back to your research, how do you envision the potential impact of your research in providing a remedy for muscular atrophy in individuals or other muscle-related disease? Where do you Mm -hmm. see the impact of this research going? I hope that this research can be used by people throughout the world because, you know, disabilities are everywhere and people can be disabled throughout the entire world. And I hope that something like this, which is readily available in the physical therapy offices, I hope that those can be utilized for the purpose of disabilities. I hope that if just this research doesn't help people, I hope that at least it inspires people to maybe continue working for something, even if it's their own research, like I did. I hope that people are inspired to work on something of their own ideas. I hope that the scientists, geneticists are able to keep working on something stronger, some drug that is able to help us fully treatment at least, you know, if not for a cure. I hope to be able to contribute to finding the cure someday. So I hope that they continue working on the treatment. But for right now, utilize what we have available. Yeah, definitely. And really quickly, to kind of clarify on something that you've continued to talk about during Mm -hmm. your explanations, can you explain how Easton works in stimulating the release of ATP and increasing the activity in satellite cells and fibroblasts? Like, how exactly does that work? Mm -hmm. So Easton releases the electrical current, which causes a contraction in a muscle. And when the actin and the myosin interact and they contract, the ATP is um, broken down into ADP in a phosphate group. So the ATP is kind of released. So that's where the release of the ATP comes from. And because of the contraction, depending on the strength of the contraction, it is able to damage the muscle, acutely damage. It's not like permanent or serious damage, but it's minor damage that would require the rebuilding of the muscle. And that's where the satellite cells would come in to rebuild it and repair it, hopefully stronger than before, but at least to regrow the certain muscle. Interesting. Okay. And how do you see the potential of e as a treatment for disabilities and its application in working against other 
muscle disorders or progressive diseases. I think that something like eSTEM could be utilized by a variety of disabilities, not just FSHD, because again, it's really just focuses on muscles. Something like a drug would be specific to my disability, but I think that eSTEM has a wide range of people that it could affect. So really any disability, I think, it could work for because we see stem being used on athletes with damaged muscles, you know, to help the regrowth of the muscle, to help it be repaired. So I think it has the potential to be used by a wide range of people throughout the world, hopefully. And I now want to touch on kind of ethical considerations because I feel like a lot of time in research that can play an important role on how you know, it can be perceived by the world and in the mm -hmm. medical field. So what are some of the ethical considerations associated with using ATP and eSTEM as potential therapies for muscular dystrophy? And how do you, you think that we can address these considerations? In my personal research, I worked on rabbit muscle, which I understand that it could be an ethical concern working on a muscle biopsy. But this was a muscle that was available for the testing for research. So I think if the muscle comes from an animal for the purpose of testing, hopefully that the biopsy was acquired without harming you know, the animal, I would say, because it's a muscle biopsy, so it was removed from the animal and hopefully left it um, you know, safe. But I think that using animals in research, because we use them in science class with like frogs and stuff, if it's for that purpose, I think there is a limit as to what we can do but it really depends on how people view it. But as long as a species isn't harmed, I think we are able to possibly use the muscles. And in general though, I would like to see that this research is being done are more specific towards the people that are affected by the disability. Because it's one thing working on muscles that come from rabbits and it's a different thing to work on people who actually have this disability. So I think it could be an ethical concern when it comes down to working on people, on humans. That's something I haven't personally faced, although I have been asked by my doctor if I would like to volunteer myself to be able to be tested on. Um, but because I am a minor, I cannot consent to that. So my parents said no to that, <laughs> um, which is maybe for the best because it is a concern probably. It's you know medication that you don't know yet. So anything is really possible, I think. But when it comes down to it, something like that, it's really for the cause. I think my dad has volunteered his muscle biopsy for the research of FSHD. Um, he still has scars from the muscle biopsies that they took way years ago when he first came to this country. So I think it's all about the future. And if it doesn't harm a species, I think it's okay to possibly use that muscle. But I think it really depends on the situation. Interesting, and I'm glad you kind of brought a lot of nuance to your answer because there's there's different sides to the entire story that a research project might involve. So based on your research findings and the potential of this therapy, what further studies or experiments would you recommend to advance our understanding and application of ATP-triggered satellite cell activities for muscle regeneration? So like I said, I would like to see their research studies being done on people with disabilities, like FSHD specifically for me. I would like to see their research specifically on these kind of muscles with this uh, disability on humans too, because 
there has been research done where the FSHD is put into like a, a rat or a mouse. And that kind of research is separate from human research, I think, because there's different ways that it would affect different you know, species, different creatures. So once it's been approved for like the rats and the mouse, the mice, I think it should be moved on to the humans, which I know some drugs are being used for that. Specifically for e-stim, I would like to see it maybe used for FSHD patients as well to really see the way that satellite cells are working and how they're repairing the muscle. And maybe if there is a difference in how much time of the e-stim is applied to the muscle, if you know keeping it longer would cause more damage and more repair as a result, or if keeping it on for a lesser time would cause less damage, but the same amount of repair of the muscle. Absolutely, and I would definitely hope to see that kind of work being done in the future. Um, and I want to transition more to talk about your advice and you know the, the things you've learned over the years. Mm-hmm. So, what is the most valuable lesson that you've learned over? your time in science and research? I think a lot of my time in science and research comes from my disability, as we've talked about. So a major part of all of this, for me, has been having hope. I think I've always said that you know, if you don't have hope, you don't have anything, because it's difficult to see or science being done without actually seeing it. I hear about the studies being done, about the treatments working out for me, hopefully but I don't see anything happening. So the best I can do is have hope and believe that the scientists and geneticists working to find me a treatment are doing their job. And I do believe in them because I hope for the best and I try to stay positive about it, the whole situation because thinking negative about anything really doesn't bring you anywhere. So I hope that the scientists are doing their best and I hope they're putting in as much effort as possible to be able to cure and treat all these people who struggle on a day-to-day basis. You know, it's something that we face every day and not everybody is able to put in, you know, the research that I, maybe I do or some others do, but the best we can do is hope. And I think that's a major part of science. So being patient and being able to hope for the best possible outcome. Absolutely. And I honestly, I admire you so much for taking that initiative because I think it, it would be so easy for you to kind of just, you know, dwell on the research being done in the past or, you know, just think about ways that you can have different lifestyle changes and things like that. But I think the fact that you went out of your way and mm-hmm. applied your life and your struggles and then also paired it with like a research project, I think I admire that so much. And Thank it's you. honestly one of like a really inspiring story. So I'm glad you were really. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Yeah. It's just, I, I don't know, I think that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Going back into your whole experience with research, you go to a research school, correct? Yeah, it's it's more of a science-based school. It's not uh, directly for research, but research is a main aspect of it. So if you choose to go into the researching field and like stay after school to do research, which by the way, there are no after-school buses. So I live an hour away from my school. So it's always, uh, if I want to come home, my mom would have to pick me up because I get driven on a bus to school. So it's a lot of effort to stay after and be able to work on the research, but I think it's always worth it. It's not a research school in general, though, but it is definitely encouraged. It's it's always an option. The teachers are always supportive, and they understand that uh, there's time that we put in for that research, and I think they always keep that in mind. 
And what kind of resources have you been able to take advantage of all throughout your you know, high school and even middle school career um, that you think our young listeners should also take advantage of to kind of pursue their STEM interests? Mm-hmm. I've been fortunate to go to the school where we have like labs with the materials that we need. And in the event that I need to order something for my research, my teachers are always there to help me. There are specifically three teachers that work on research. And if I were to go to them and I would ask them, can I have this list of materials? We would sit down and discuss what I need and what I don't need. And then, of course, there's a limit as to how much we can get. But because research is so important to us, we were able to put in the money to get those supplies. But I think if there are individuals who choose to pursue the research field outside of that kind of environment. There are options to reach out to universities, I think you've done, reach out to the universities around, see if maybe you could participate in a project that they're working on or ask for help in their research facilities and see if there's anything that you can work with there. Um, Aside from that, I think for the younger audience, like middle schoolers, I hope that maybe they could get involved in researching online because there's data available that hasn't been analyzed yet and applied to the real world. And I think that's something my teacher mentioned to me, actually, if there was ever a situation where I wasn't sure what kind of project to do, there is data available for analysis. So that's always an option, I think, as well, if you choose to go into the researching field. So I think there's always something that could be done. I mean, science is such a big field, so a lot of opportunities. Absolutely. And I think that piece of advice about data analysis is so overlooked. I I don't often see people just taking advantage of what's already out there Mm -hmm. and applying it to major issues. So yeah, that's a great piece of advice. Before we wrap up, can you end by giving our young students that are interested in pursuing a career in this kind of field one piece of advice, one takeaway point that you would give them? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I've mentioned a lot, so I'll just recap it. I think the main points are to have patience and to be organized and to have hope in the best. I think that can be applied to research. I think that can be applied to science. It can be applied to anything in the real world, in your life, in general, I think. For the younger audience, for the older audience, in general, I think that believing in the best and having the motivation to continue because staying motivated and working on something is so, I think, inspiring. So I hope that if there's something that the audience can take away, it's to stay motivated and believe in the best. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening and telling us a little bit about your groundbreaking work and your inspiring story. It's so great to see other high school students make such an impact in unique and powerful ways. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, too. You're a great inspiration as well. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in tonight on WDIY's Teen Scientist. I'm Raina Malhotra, and I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this program, please go to WDIY.org or the WDIY app to share or become a WDIY member.